Welcome to this week's Hotel Analyst podcast, where you find the regular tourists chewing over matters of importance in the hotel space that we spotted in the last week or so. So we have Andrew Sankster, the editorial director of Hotel Analyst, joining me, Chris Bound, the editor at Hotel Analyst, as we look at the topics we've selected. And the first of those is uh, Pandox, the Scandinavian hotel landlord and operator who've uh, come up with their annual results uh, and also their results from the last quarter. Uh, their CEO, Anders Nissen, had the feeling of a man who's just frankly a bit frustrated, a bit sort of sitting there waiting for lockdowns to end so he can get stuck in and get his hotels up and running again. Um, Pandox has uh, spent the last few months, you know, sitting there with a lot of their hotels in, in the UK and Germany locked down and enforced closures effectively. But one of the clever things that Pandox does as a landlord is a lot of their uh, relationships with their tenants have a base a fixed element to their for the rentals and then a very much larger variable element so they've been collecting the base element uh, which almost just about covers their overheads and uh, outgoing costs which has meant that they don't suffer too badly um, and they're just frustrated and waiting to get going it seems yeah i agree i mean just a quick comment on that piece about the shared pain thing i think mm. that clearly is is a way forward and it what, what's interesting with this we've we've you've got the two extremes of fixed leases and um management contracts where there's sort of no pain um at one end for the operator and absolute pain at the other end um this is a, a sensible halfway house, halfway house for everybody, I think. And you can do it through management contracts with guarantees, but nobody wants those. But the, the Pandox one is, is quite an interesting route through this, I think. And of course, as a specialist owner, it, it can it can assess the operational risk appropriately. Um, but I think the most interesting thing I found, you noted um, um, Anders Nissen's uh, pent-up frustration and that, mm. that clearly came through and he says he, he really hopes he doesn't ever have to present a set of results like this again mm. um, as, as indeed yeah. we all do <laughs> I think we never, have, we, we never want to sit through um, we're just entering the final results season and I hope this is the, the all-time worst for the industry ever um, well, that's right, because um, his, his, his quarterly in operating income was down 53% year on year. So, yes, yeah, no, we don't want that, do we? No. Yeah, no, 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 no. And, but what, what he has, I mean, we've got coming up here in the UK, uh, the, the Prime Minister Boris Johnson's going to give us a roadmap on Monday, the 22nd of February. And to an extent, we had a roadmap. Let's, from let's hope there's Anders. not too much fog. <laughs> oh dear, don't. Yeah, but I, I think you know the, the the Johnson formula is is to say, look, we're as we come out of this, we are definitely not going back to it. And I think there's a real sense of that from from Nissan as well. Mm. Um, but from Nissan's point of view, what, um, what he talked about was individual leisure coming back first, uh, then domestic business travel, uh, driven mainly from SMEs, um, and then the summer. He said it could be a bomb. Mm. Um, which I think was a positive. Yeah, yeah. I think, um, yes. I think it's a Scandinavian um, way of saying, yeah. Yes, yes. Uh, um, very good, yes. And, and then he said, uh, you know, towards the end of the summer, um, it could get very exciting. Um, he said, with meetings and the first signs of international travel. Now, um, regular listeners to this podcast will know we agree on the domestic travel front. We are probably more bullish on the... Uh, 
business travel, domestic business travel coming back. I, I would argue that we're that's already in place. Even in the UK, we've got the hotels locked down. There is still essential travel for business, and that is still happening. And I really do think that's going to come back a lot quicker than people are, are forecasting. However, I am more pessimistic with regard to international travel. Now, it may be that it's the UK, which is the uh, hardest hit here um, from, the, from the international travel perspective because there seems to me a political trade-off going on between look we're going to open up everything in the UK domestically but we're going to keep tough borders going and the current I mean it's it's a far from satisfactory arrangement we have with this hotel quarantine but it, it, it the way it's been implemented the way it sort of seems to be be perceived is really as a as a sop to the let's keep us all in lockdown um, brigade and that um, they're saying look we'll come out of this if we if we put these borders up um, and I suspect that uh, that is only going to get uh, more extensive as the year progresses uh, progresses rather than um, lifted we'll see on that one but that's my main my main fear and perhaps the the main area where I think you know um, I would differ with the sort of broadly optimistic outlook from Pandox is that I think the international travel piece is going to take longer particularly from a UK perspective now it's very interesting we talked about a this again last week actually in terms of how this is going to play out in in terms of the summer season if the UK borders stay shut if international travel is broadly closed for northern Europe as well um, then it's bumper time um, for hoteliers in the north very grim in the south of Europe um, I suspect there's probably going to be within the Schengen area I think we're going to see a bit of travel still although um, in the last couple of weeks we saw Sweden we saw uh, Belgium and we saw Germany put border controls up I think they will go um, as vaccine gets delivered even though it's a bit slower than the UK delivery I think that we will still see that and maybe just in time for um, some sort of summer season for the southern Europeans and but I do think it's probably going to be a drive to rather than a fly to and I think I don't know about you Chris but I am very hesitant about booking any sort of foreign jaunt this year simply because <laughs> what, what I don't want is to end up having to spend 10 days in a quarantine <laughs> hotel um, at a UK airport. Absolutely, on my way no, back. no, 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 not doing that at all. No, 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 no point. <laughs> no, no. So, and, and I suspect it's good that is going to be the case. Although there's huge appetite for overseas travel in the UK, I suspect that's going to be the case for a good a portion of consumers, which is going to guarantee a bumper season for hoteliers in the UK, a bomb, as Anders Nissen mm -hmm, would have it, mm -hmm. um, but um, uh, much less so for any places which are dependent on UK as a source market so I think there are going to be patches of Spain patches of France patches of Greece which are really going to struggle um, this year as the Brits stay away unless the pressure builds and the budget airlines get to fly again yeah, well, I think I think the budget airlines are more than willing to deliver that. It's this political aspect, and I, I just think that the problem is, you know, how will they do that? Yeah. I, I just don't see vaccine passports coming in. No, um, because I, I think this intergenerational thing is a big issue. Because if all of a sudden we start seeing, you know, the fifty pluses heading off into summer jaunts where all the teenagers are locked at home, uh, that is just not going to play well. No. I don't think and, and and I think they can't you know it's it just it, it, and 
they've only just started um, testing the vaccine on children. Um, you know, until that is done and until they're very secure on this there were a few issues with the swine flu vaccine with with children mm -hmm. so i think they're going to be super cautious on that i don't see any widespread vaccination program for children happening at, at, you know until at least the autumn and and that means families are not going to be able to travel and i suspect that means we're not just the, the government's decision is let's put a whole dampener on overseas travel for this year and until we can go out as collectively as a population i think we'll all be unleashed but that's going to be a 2022 thing for 2021 the unleashing is going to be domestically in the uk um the the variable the one that i have less um certainty around is is what happens within europe and in, within the schengen area um how free and easy that that level of travel is going to be i suspect there'll be more than there will be in the UK, but there may still be some um, friction at the borders. Now let's move on to an ex what could be potentially a very exciting area for those hoteliers who always wondered how they're going to actually turn a profit out of their kitchen and operations in their hotels. Um, I've been taking a close look at uh, the whole business of ghost kitchens, virtual kitchens, lean kitchens, um, uh, the business of providing takeaway meals. Um, now this is a kind of another pre-pandemic uh, growth story that's been massively accelerated through the pandemic because we had the arrival uh, into a wide selection of markets of companies such as Deliveroo and Just Eat who were basically they'd, they'd stick a little app together with which would list your local restaurants they'd take care of the kind of um, ordering online and then they'd they'd get make sure uh, somebody turned up with a bicycle and a kind of big pack on their back to deliver it to the pe people who order it um, now that was already happening before the pandemic but what's happened during the pandemic is that's got a much more broader and deeper following because people who are locked down are much more likely to order food at their at their sofa to be delivered to their home but there's been a whole raft of restaurateurs and other food industry people have come into the space and spotted ways to do this to deliver this create and deliver this food from other sources than just from the restaurants that had already kind of worked out how to do uh, these this virtual takeaway service and what's happening now is we've got a whole new uh, band of folk who are looking around and looking at hotels um, and pe people who've already got commercial kitchens and working out how to market a, a selection of food offerings that can be can be produced quite quickly within a kitchen any kitchen doesn't matter where uh, and and then delivered to the people sitting on their sofa who've ordered it off their mobile phone app. So um, it seems quite an exciting area, Andrew, doesn't it? I think it is. I think this is a genuinely positive change for, for the sector. Um, it's, again, COVID as an accelerant rather than a change agent. Yeah. That mantra we say every week, and this is... But the, the, I, think you know, I think the accelerant a, is, is substantially stronger in this case than in many other things we've looked at, actually. Oh, it is. It's very, very powerful, yeah. I think. I think you're absolutely right. I think the key thing is what, what you've got here is for a, a, a hotel kitchen to actually scale oh. up and actually be able to be uh, a viable economic a profit centre in its own right, which has always been, as you said, very, very elusive. Yeah. Now, hoteliers can approach, approach this a bunch of ways, I think. One way is to simply forget about uh, um, providing any sort of F&B, and I think this is possible in, in bigger cities. You could just be a bed factory and just um, rely on, on these delivery 
apps to go and do all the meals for guests. I think think that's a perfectly viable uh, way forward. Um, the other thing that can happen is that the the kitchen itself can have one of these virtual kitchens being there prepping up and and delivering a whole bunch of stuff to the, uh, the the local area and at the same time be be, be supplying stuff for guests or uh, an owner could say look I, I don't like F&B it's a tricky area and it is a tricky area um, what I'd rather do is simply rent or lease out that bit of my premises to to a third party player who can come in and operate that and that that's another way forward so it's a whole host of different approaches mm. i think for this which um, you know does as you say really bring some solutions to that effort well i mean the numbers the numbers are you know some of these guys are saying we could deliver an extra ten thousand pounds a week of revenue through your kitchen yeah, I, I, I can believe it, and I think it works. I mean, I um, at the weekend I had ah, um, a virtual. You, you did a road sort test. Of a virtual, I'm not sure. <laughs> yes, I did a Deliveroo. Well, it was Shake Shack, which is this. Um, it's a it's a burger concept, which actually comes out of the states. There's a few in London, um, which were open uh, pre-pandemic, um, but certainly not here in Cambridge. But what's happened in Cambridge? Somebody's rented a industrial unit, um, stuck in a load of. Uh, kitchen stuff and um, got in the the Shake Shack um, boxes etc and we 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 had a you know pretty good burger meal actually the kids gave it the thumbs up it, it you know it, it passed the the children test so uh, you know I, I think I think it, it is a very viable proposition there's no reason that couldn't happen in a hotel mm. of course so um, to do that and you know why not an upmarket burger thing is a very good option I think from a from a hotel kitchen perspective because of the the mass appeal and you know, certainly for anything up to uh, you know an upscale property um, certainly a luxury property that, that works very well I think for mid-market and economy hotels mm. and I the impression I got was that you know if you've got uh, a, a hotel owner who's sitting there on a you know he's, he's spent fifty hundred thousand pound kitting out a kitchen in the last three to five years and it's sitting there doing nothing he absolutely gets the opportunity to get the staff back in get it going again and let's just you know prepare whatever you tell us to prepare <laughs> whatever you can sell we'll make it you know and um it doesn't need to yeah and, and the, the thing is this this goes beyond just this short-term period of of this mm. lockdown um it goes into the future oh, yeah. too which is which is the way forward I and mean, there's another example i mean I, i'm just i was thinking back uh so the early hoxton they had a go at trying to rent out uh their f&b space not overly successfully i think they had went through one or two operators at the beginning when the when the concept was initially being trialed there's another is there's a, a bar here in cambridge i think which has a very interesting approach to it so so the, the bar owner just focuses on the, the liquor-led business and rents out on a Thursday, Friday and Saturday, rents out its kitchens to different operators to come in and use. And it, what, what's appealing, because, you know, Thursday night, say, maybe it's an Indian, Friday night it's Mexican and Saturday night it's burgers. You know, so you get that variety, mm. which is which is great, I think. And, you know, so yet another solution um, that, that's available, I think, for... for uh, property owners in terms of how they they skin this particular F&B cat so I, I think it's uh, uh, it, very neat and I think we're going to see a lot of it um. in times if you are um, sitting on an unused kitchen because frankly you can press it into service quite quickly and without any more capex so um, uh, indeed. Let's, indeed we look forward to eating eating in soon from your local holiday inn 
um, except you just won't know it is. Uh, right now, next we're going to talk home rental space, um, and it's you know it's a space where there's been uh, one or two issues to do with turning the screws in terms of regulation in the last few months. The mayor of Barcelona, who's uh, famously anti-Airbnb, is looking at further regulation, and then the Scottish government is also looking at further regulation. Um, to kind of clamp down on the home rental space. Uh, yet, despite this, it's, it's actually been a, a kind of sector or a part of the accommodation space that's done very well in the last year, you know, through the pandemic. And we've already sp spoken previously about how well-serviced apartments have done, but indeed home rentals have done very strongly too. And uh, in fact, there's a survey carried out recently which suggests that hotels are now cheaper in some American cities as accommodation than their home rental peers just because the kind of demand has skewed so much that the uh, the pricing has moved to match um, but uh, uh, various cities and and localities demanding that they're going to introduce more restrictions to improve this that and the other and and deal with the cowboys and so on uh, but I think the sector is uh, is arguing fairly convincingly that they're they're sorting themselves out and don't really need these prodding from local authorities in various spots of the world mm, mm. up to a point i mean that, that everybody wants self-regulation rather than the government's coming in i i, I do think um we're going to need to have some regulation i mean I, I think there's a couple of rules of thumb um when the incumbents in an industry look at this the first rule of thumb is that uh, uh, incumbents should not be allowed to use regulation as a way to stifle competition and I think this government's are well aware of that there's been various reports on the emergence of the so-called sharing economy sector um, the government's conscious of that it's an area they want to be global leaders in. now I'm talking about the UK here um, where the UK government wants to be seen to be global leaders in this area so I, I think in terms of coming in and just um, throwing a bucket of cold water over the whole thing I don't think is on the cards. Maybe up in Scotland where um, Nicola Sturgeon, the First Minister, seems to want to take her own way on so many <laughs> so, so many areas um, but I don't think that's going to be the case in England at least. Um, the second thing is that uh, from an incumbent's perspective relying on regulation um, the second rule of thumb is that by the time regulators get to work you're probably going to be out of business so you need to take it on and and look at it and examine it seriously the threat and challenge that it is having said all that um as i sort of mentioned i do think there is a very strong case for a, a, a degree of relatively light touch government regulation on this sector um this this pitch we hear constantly oh we're just a platform um no you're not a platform you're actually taking money you've got a relationship both with uh, the owner of the property and with the consumer you're an agent and you should be regulated as if you were an agent so if you look at say estate agents in the uk they have to comply with money laundering regulations they have to establish who the uh, um, 
people they're dealing with, both from a buyer and from a seller perspective. Um, you have to go through that. And, and that, that's perfectly reasonable, I think, and that's something that ought to be applied in this case too. I mean, if, if we look at a hotel or guest house, you know, they are required to record who's staying there. I mean, this is data that's already collected, um, but that should be made available to the authorities on demand as hotels are required to do or registered guest houses are required to do. Airbnb and other sharing platforms need to, you know, ought to be coughing up that sort of information as well. Um, now, in, in terms of that money laundering piece, that is regulated by the tax authority, HMRC. They can actually come in. There ought to be a registration for anybody using the platform as a host with Airbnb to make it clear, you know, flag up to HMRC next time we get a tax return. I'd like to see your Airbnb income, please, listed here. And that, 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 that's, you know, that can be done in relatively um, light touch ways, I think. We don't need to over overdo this. Uh, but the key thing I think that's just scandalous that hasn't been addressed is the whole issue of life safety. And it's something I've mentioned before, but it's this issue of not needing a gas safety certificate if you're letting on Airbnb. You damn well ought to, they ought to require it. If you're going to let your property there you, and you've got gas in there, you have to upload your gas safety certificate. You have to upload your electrical safety certificate. Anybody that's doing a six month or more let in the UK in residential has to comply with those rules and they ought to be there and a requirement to actually list on Airbnb. Um, you know, these aren't just marketplaces, they're market participants and they should be treated as, as such. So I, I, I think that this is the level of regulation I'd like to see coming in. I, I mean, unfortunately, what we have seen is um, I think some genuinely misguided lobbying by um, established hospitality uh, players. You know, they've been pointing out saying, look at what's happening in the residential market. It's being distorted. People can't afford their, you know, to rent at a reasonable level anymore. Well, unfortunately, that cuts as well towards hospitality property. Because if you've got a hotel there, um, any form of sort of living um, in, the, in the living sector, type of property is going to um, squeeze out uh, traditional renters. I, I, I think it needs to be thought through the approach that's taken here because really as an industry we should be lining up alongside um, the ho um, alongside the home rental industry saying look um, how there ought to be a free market approach to this and property should be used in, in the most economically appropriate way um, and as the living sector in terms of residential in terms of co-living in terms of student housing all of this stuff stuff begins to blend and overlap I think that's going to become a bigger and bigger mm. issue what we can do is say look let's have appropriate levels of light touch regulation that puts it on um, same level as uh, traditional um, short-term accommodation that's fine um, and let's work out you know if we, if we need to have affordable accommodation that should be supported and sustained by government action um, separate rather than sort of market fiddling um, which is kind of 
sort of what the hospitality industry has been proposing is, is one way of sorting out the Airbnb stuff um, and that's certainly a key motivator for the Scottish government for example but that same motivation is going to prevent new hotels opening up in Scotland, um, serviced apartments opening up and could even go as far as stopping co-living and um, um, even student accommodation um, being seen to, to being allowed to grow adequately. So I think we've got to be a bit more careful in terms of our approach. Right, and now we're going to suspend our normal no-star and five-star awards because we've learned today that uh, Arnie Sorensen, the CEO of Marriott, uh, died yesterday having battled pancreatic cancer since the diagnosis in uh, 2019. And so uh, we just spent a few minutes uh, thinking about how Tani, I never interviewed him, but um, I did watch and listen to him speaking and being interviewed many a time. And he always came across as a consummate leader. He never put a foot wrong when talking on the hoof. And uh, he distinguished himself by being one of the few corporate leaders to pull off a successful takeover or merger by uh, taking Starwood on board into uh, Marriott and creating the biggest hotel business globally and uh, enabled for a, a decent shareholders' returns. So he leaves a vehicle, or should that be a juggernaut, that seems to be running quite smoothly for his successor. So um, farewell, Arnie. Uh, but Andrew, I think you... you Yeah, I met him. I first met him, actually, when he was still uh, CFO of Marriott. Um, and it's a few things to say about him, I think. The first, you've, you've mentioned his... his successful leadership and it, it's quite something to come in to a, what was a very family dominated company like Marriott and come through and convince the board the family um, control board that actually you're the right person to take this on rather than another family member um, so I think that was quite an achievement in itself but I mean as you said in terms of what he's done with the Starwood acquisition and how he's grown Marriott to be clearly the global leader in, in amongst the, the big brand hotel companies um, is, is quite an achievement but I, I, th I think for me his biggest achievement was you know the handful of times I've met him is just what a decent human being he came across as um, and I, I, you know it's very easy when you're at that level I think to, to, to ignore the, the, the little fish the minnows and, and not treat them with the same level of respect and and equality that you do the the ones where you're trying to get a deal out of but um, Arnie was one of those rare people who did do that um, um, and, and respected people um, and respected his customers the people he worked with at Marriott and you know even even people <laughs> like me <laughs> annoying journalists uh, he, he was indeed a, a, a very decent man and, so farewell uh, Arnie taken far too soon on that note, we'll wish you bye for now.